You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Welcome back to Cutaneous Miscellaneous. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Brownstone. If you're tuning in again, welcome back. And if you happen to click on this podcast when you're looking for a different podcast, say the new true crime podcast, stay a while. Maybe you'll learn something. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our listeners. Last episode, we had a poll asking questions about how you liked the episode and the series, and it got rave reviews, which makes me so happy. This series is about helping residents becoming the best they can be in residency and when they graduate while acing their boards. So we're here for you. Any other comments, questions, things that you want to hear about, please let us know. And we're going to link the email in our show notes. So let's not waste any more time and get started. There's a lot to talk about on this episode. I'm so happy to have as a special guest, Dr. William Higgins. He's assistant professor of clinical dermatology and director of the Mohs Lab at Pennsylvania Hospital. So Dr. Higgins, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Really, really looking forward to speaking with you. We we have a lot of great topics to discuss. Before we talk about the board review, just want to review what we're going to speak about, and it's going to be how to be a better surgical dermatologist as a resident, and also how to match into Mohs surgery, which I know a lot of residents are interested in. So before we discuss that, surgical dermatology is obviously a very important topic. It shows up on the basic exam, has its own core exam, and of course, it's discussed in the boards. So how do you tackle this subject when studying for these exams? I think uh, one of the key tenets is slow and steady wins the race. You don't want to try to cram this one. Um, So having a good plan from the start is important. Uh, I actually spoke to some of our wonderful Penn residents tonight and our Mohs fellow and got their input as far as how they studied. Um, But you want to have like a good foundational text. Uh, One of them mentioned that he used Bologna. Uh, You could also do something a little easier, more bullet point, something like the ASDS surgery primer, which is what I love. Of course, Alicom is a great resource, but use that primary resource and uh, supplement it with other information to get along the way. And then questions, questions, and more questions. Uh, so the AAD question bank, the ASDS rescue uh, app, which I was I was part of uh, co-writing that, so it's near and dear to my heart. And um, other question banks like the DermQ bank as well, if time permits. And it's a wide range of subjects. I mean, it is focused on dermatologic surgery, but that's everything from tumor biology to cosmetics. So, you know, you, you want to make sure you want to know your fundamentals um, and not just flaps and grafts, but things like tumor biology, you know, the different HPV strains that are associated with certain tumors, different um, genes that are associated with certain tumors are important to know. And, um, I, I can't stress how important those are to study before the, this uh, core exam and your boards. And then, of course, things like suture properties, cautery, surgical instruments, flap repairs. And it's we say flap repairs, it's more or less like seeing a defect and then seeing it repaired afterwards and being able to identify what flap was done. You know, so being able to identify what a rhombic flap looks like, for example. They love that one because it's confusing, but look for the question mark shape repair, and uh, that's usually going to be a rhombic flap. And then just knowing your key stitches, things like transposition flaps or rhombic flaps, know that you're going to be suturing your secondary defect first uh, before you're suturing your primary defect, uh, as opposed to advancement and, and rotation, which are sliding flaps where you're going to be suturing the 
primary defect first. Um, Cosmetic-wise, know your fillers and injectables, and know your lasers. Know what wavelengths would be indicated for certain clinical scenarios. Yeah, that's uh, really, really great advice there. I like what you said about knowing the flap forwards and backwards, because a lot of times we think, here's a defect, what's the flap? But they're going a step further and asking you, here's the flap, what was the defect, or how did we get to the spot, or what steps do you have to take to get there? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, they love those questions because unless you've seen it live, it's sort of hard to figure out. So on that note as well, spend as much time in your local Mohs unit as possible. We always love when we have residents, fellows, med students rotate with us. And um, yeah, they, they love that transposition flap that goes from the cheek to the nose, the nasolabial transposition flap. It's, it's confusing unless you see it. So spending time in clinic, seeing how it moves, um, gives you a real insight as far as um, you know, what repair to choose. I was also going to make a note of two. I heard also there's these ASDS flashcards um, that can okay. also be very helpful. So to make a plug for that. And I just want to give a shout out to our f- fellow Harrison Wim, uh, who's uh, gave me some advice on that tonight. And then our wonderful resident uh, who's applying to Moses here, Dan Lewis as well. Great. Well, thank you to Harrison and Dan. We really appreciate those tips. And just wanted to highlight again what you said about slow and steady because you come into derm, you have to learn all this medical derm. It seems so daunting. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, now I have to learn all the surgical derm, you know, suture properties and anesthesia, lidocaine, uh, different types of flaps, but it's really slow and steady. And I think if you stick to those resources that you said, do a ton of questions, things will work out fine. Yeah. And it, from what I hear too, it's, um, we used to have the in-service exam, which was questions that were thrown out, that were put into a test. And so they were just way out of left, way out in left field. But from what I hear, the dermatology, uh, dermatologic surgery core exam, it's not too outlandish. It's pretty reasonable. Okay, that, that's nice to hear. So, Dr. Higgins, let's move away from board review and into more practical things now. And you know, not everybody that's listening is going to be a surgical dermatologist or a Mohs surgeon, but everyone's going to have to do excisions and surgery during their residency. And a lot of people who do general derm will do excisions and surgery in their practice as well. So I want to start off by asking, you know, what are some tips for residents on how to improve their surgical skills uh, in residency when first starting out? And if they've been in residency for a few years, how can they take it to the next level? I I love that question. Um, You know, we, we own excisions that, that is, that's our bread and butter right there, whether you're doing Mohs, whether you're doing general dermatology. Um, And my short answer, which we always say to our residents and fellows is get reps. Um, You got to get your hands dirty to know how to, how to do an excision, a flap or whatever repair you want to become, have mastery of. Uh, We had a resident recently, uh, well, multiple residents who are very eager to learn more and, and one in particular who wasn't interested in going into Mohs, but just really wanted to make sure he honed his skills. So he would, anytime he had a free moment or he didn't have clinic, he'd come and join us. And so we make sure to get him the opportunity to suture. But as far as uh, tips for excisions uh, to make them go well, just a few things. So truncal excisions, they're tough because you can get hypertrophic scarring. A couple ways to avoid that, plicating sutures. So doing three-layer closures where you're plicating uh, the soft tissue or the fascia together to take tension off the top. Using a long-acting suture. I don't think I can use trade names tonight, um, but sutures that are going to last longer, uh, monofilament sutures that will last longer uh, to prevent that scar spread over time. And um, I, I used to be somewhat skeptical about these, but I've become a big fan of the running subcuticular stitch recently. And uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of using that with glue on top. And for older patients who can't reach their back or of any age for that matter, can't reach the middle of the back, it's a little easier as far as wound care goes. 
One other thing I was going to mention as well um, that I learned is to reverse bevel. So when you're doing an excision on the trunk, instead of making your incision 90 degrees of the skin, make it so the incision creates epidermal edges that are closer at the top than the subcutaneous tissue at the bottom. So if you imagine you're looking at that cut tissue from the horizon, you'd be seeing epidermal edges that are closer together uh, than the underlying subcutaneous tissue. And that sort of tees you up for a good, nice everted uh, incision line once it's closed. Yeah, I love what you said there about getting reps. That's the same way I got these big biceps, which I know you can't see because we're on a podcast <laughs> now, but we'll have to do a video <laughs> podcast next time and I can flex those biceps. But but reps is so important. The more you do, you know, I have some, I was actually a plastic surgery resident for a couple of years before I switched to derm. So I've seen plastic surgeons and dermatologists do excisions. And, you know, I've seen some derms do better work than plastic surgeons because they do so many excisions. They really know how to do it well um, and, and certain things along those lines. So it's true. Sometimes it's hard, though, to get into the Mohs, the Mohs unit or do excisions in, in, in clinic. So at home, um, on your free time, how are some ways that residents can get those reps in and get the practice in? I um, This is kind of funny, but I had a almost like a security blanket. I had a pillow I would carry with me in my house. And my wife teases me to this day about this, but I had a pillow that I would take. I had two, um, I, I would get old surgical tools that were um, going to be discarded and I'd clamp either end of the pillow to create two skin edges and I'd stitch on that. But whatever you use, whether it's a pillow, uh, pig's foot, apple, banana, um, you know, making sure you're doing it consistently, making sure you're coming in with purpose, you know, just sitting there and stitching and doing it without intention is not going to be helpful to you, but come in with a purpose. So you're going to try to work on your buried vertical mattress suture. Are you going to try to work on using skin hooks for your, your deep sutures? Um, try to use it to hone those things. Do it slowly when you're doing it at home because it's going to make you so much better. It's almost like a baseball player with a practice swing. If you do all those, uh, if you do your practice swing well, uh, you're going to hit the ball much better. How do you counsel patients on wound care and scarrings? For example, patient says, this is going to leave no scar, right? Or this is going to leave a minimal scar. Uh, what do you tell them? Because I know that's a very important uh, point as well when doing excisions. That was one of my favorite parts of fellowship is not only the technical aspects, but learning how to say things in a way um, that would convey the idea, but not scare the patient. So that, that's a really great question. I I always say that whoever tells you there's not going to be a scar might be tell, might be fibbing. Uh, there will always be a scar. Um, some of my key lines, my Higgins-isms, if you will, that I'm sure my nurses would, uh, you know, if I had a pull cord on my back, these are things I would say all the time. But telling patients like an expected timeline is helpful. My fellowship director used to say, well, it takes your mother, it takes our mothers nine to 10 months to make our skin. So we have to expect some time to heal. And I love that line because patients will expect, you know, a week or two and it's going to be back to normal. I always say it's going to be pink and bumpy for three to four months. So pink and bumpy. And I'll even quiz them before they leave on that. And, um, you know, letting them know that that time course is so helpful. You're, you're going to put them at ease. Um, also letting them know that, that you're not leaving them out in the breeze. If I do a flap or larger repair in a patient, I'll always say, hey, the door is open. I'd love to see you in four months. And, you know, it, when you're, especially when you're first out, that is how you're going to really hone your skill. Looking at that repair and thinking, oh, yeah, I, I remember I did that tip stitch there. Oh, I remember I really tried to um, really avert that edge. That's how you're going to get that feedback that's going to make you so uh, so much better and to grow. Um, but I, I think that's a, a, a great question. And, and 
patients really appreciate that when you tell them it up front. Right. There's the art of medicine, the science of medicine. That's where the art comes in. Everyone should be on the lookout for the Dr. Higgins doll this holiday season where you <laughs> pull the string and pink and bumpy, pink and bumpy will be repeated. So <laughs> that's going to hit the stores pretty soon. So Dr. Higgins, this has been great information, but I want to take a moment and pause here and let our listeners know about a really exciting opportunity for residents that's coming up. I'm happy to announce Rising Derm Stars for the Winter Clinical Dermatology Meeting, where residents can submit their projects and, if chosen, get an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii and registration to the Winter Clinical 2023 Conference, which will take place in January in Kona, the big island of Hawaii. You'll get to present your work in front of the conference and get a mentor and have one-on-one mentorship with a leader in the field of dermatology. How wonderful is that? And one more bonus... You get to have a drink with me on the beach, which I know some people might think is punishment, but I hope that won't discourage you from applying. So we're going to link the details for this program in the show notes, and we really hope you consider applying now or in the future. So next, I want to ask about matching into Moe's, which you know some people might not be interested in, but I know a lot of residents are. And I looked at the numbers just the other day, getting ready for the episode, and I saw that 50% of applicants match into Moe's. And these aren't just people that you see at the bus stop. These are all high-performing, intelligent dermatology residents. So please give me some tips. Give all the residents some tips about how we start this journey uh, if we're interested in matching into Moe's. Yeah, it has become, I I will say this, I'm glad I'm not applying now. Uh, I feel fortunate to have matched. It's very competitive. I I review applications and it is is so hard to determine who to interview, who not to interview, because everyone is just excellent. That being said, um, what we're looking for is a narrative in their application. We're looking for an oftentimes an it's not always the case, but some sort of thread of interest that may have started in their first year, their second year, but where they have some Mo's publications. They they may have done like a case report their first year. In their second year, they may have done uh, a case series. In the third year, they may have like designed a, a larger study. Seeing a thread of activity is important. It's very hard to to see it in an application where they had fantastic board scores, they have a lot of publications, but nothing relates to Mo's. Unfortunately, the the um, what we intuit about that is that maybe they just made a last minute decision to do Mo's. So we want to see a narrative in their application. Good letters of recommendation. Um, I love like unique letters, uh, well, unique things like this is the person I want to bring home and have my daughter marry type of comments. You know that set applicants apart. But a, a letter writer who knows you well and, and isn't just going to regurgitate your CV. Um, we um, also uh, we do uh, we have applicants. We, there's three rounds for our uh, the Penn Mose Fellowship, and the second round we have applicants send in a video of them suturing. Um, so you know you don't have to be uh, God's gift to surgery yet, but you know having some basic skills, um, uh, you know, smooth, consistent technique is important. And also um, a willingness to accept feedback. I I will also say the analogy I often give our applicants is, and this may sound silly, but it it is somewhat of a dating game. Uh, The programs want to see an an interest coming from the applicants and, of course, vice versa. So showing that program that you're interested is very helpful. And I, I call that being politely persistent. But, you know, say you apply and you don't hear back, maybe an email with a summary of like, you know, hey, since we last corresponded, I published this paper on Merkel cell carcinoma and had these two abstracts accepted. Fellowship directors aren't bothered by that. Um, they may not answer, but they're, they're not bothered by it. 
and it's a way to, you know, continue to put yourself on the radar uh, to make sure you're noticed and um, that, you're, that your you know name gets out there. Going to meetings is helpful. The ASDS always happens to fall right after the applications go in, so I always tell our applicants to try to go there, show your face, and um, that, that's a real nice way to introduce yourself and often get a few extra interviews just from some face-to-face contact. Yeah, Mo is, as you mentioned, extremely competitive, but you know what? So is dermatology, and everyone made it into dermatology with determination. So if you have determination, you, you'll make it there too. What about applicants uh, or you know residents who don't have a MOS program or don't have a really strong MOS program? How can they get some more research and some more opportunities uh, as a resident if they're interested in doing MOS? Um, so that, that's we see that not infrequently. Um, mentorship is very key, and um, finding a mentor who's, you don't typically want somebody who's like, you know, 20, 30 years out. You want somebody who's kind of maybe five to 10 years out, somewhat familiar with the process, um, who can help navigate, you know, your, how you're going to approach your interviews, et cetera. And you want to reach out to, you know, either, either at a meeting or via email, just people you think might have shared interest. Uh, I have mentors that I approached five or six times before I got traction. And now we, we speak every couple of weeks, um, but, but again, be politely persistent. So if you're in a program where you don't have a Mo's, um fellowship, reach out, see if there's a, a research project you can get on, see if you can rotate it at an institution, um, because there are a lot of people out there that are willing to be your advocate. And, uh, and then you're going to also need for those letters uh, to be written, you know, to, to have a strong um, support of your application. Excellent. Well, Dr. Higgins, we're almost out of time, but I have one more question for you. And this is the most important question. You know, I love food, all kinds of food, uh, but I especially love cheesesteaks. And, you know, I know you practice in Philadelphia. So I want to ask you, where is your favorite spot to get a cheesesteak? You know, Nick, um, my <laughs> nerd. So I, I, prior to coming here, I was in New England. So I, I was, uh, I was calling them grinders and all sorts of things that are, uh, you know, sacrilege in the city of Philadelphia. <laughs> My nurses at the Pennsylvania Hospital Mose Unit heard that I hadn't had a cheesesteak. And so they said, we got to get you one. So one day they brought me Jim's cheesesteak. And that's the only one I've tried. And so that's my favorite. And it was delicious. Jim's. It was, yeah. So Jim's would be my answer. Yeah. Are you are you a whiz wit guy or how do you take the cheesesteak? You know, I had it with whiz and uh, I liked it. So I'll have to say yes with whiz. All right. Cheesesteaks are great. So if anybody out there hasn't had one yet or hasn't had one from Philadelphia, we'll be happy to uh, host you here and have a cheesesteak. Thanks again, Dr. Higgins. This has been so helpful. I learned so much. I'm sure my resident colleagues are going to learn a lot too. So appreciate your time. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me.